Good morning, friends. There we go. My name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you, I'm grateful to be here at Pinecrest on Pledge Sunday. It's the kickoff weekend of Thanksgiving, which has totally changed now. If you have children, you know that your kids are out of school all week now. It used to be, back in my day, we had to suffer till halfway through Wednesday. Do you remember that, where you had to be in school and try to focus, but Thanksgiving was coming, and as a child, I was always so excited for Thanksgiving for two reasons. Can you guess the reasons? One, food. Who's excited about Thanksgiving food? Oh, yeah. I'm not eating all week. I'm just doing salads, deep breaths of air. I'm going to be ready for Thanksgiving. And then the second reason is football. Food and football all day long. They have that turkey and the Detroit Lions game. You ever seen that with the six legs? That, I don't know if I'd eat that. That feels weird. But I love Thanksgiving. I love time with friends and family. And, and you guys are family. And so it's wonderful to be here with you this morning. We are in episode three of our annual campaign, which takes place every November. This year we've called it Gospel Legacy. And the reason we called it Gospel Legacy is because Crossbridge as a movement of churches, as a family of churches, celebrated 15 years this year. And so we wanted to say for the next 15 years, we want to focus on and cast vision and talk about how do we build and continue to build a movement of the gospel here in Miami. And so we believe as a church that this coming year, 2024, is a pivotal year in the life of every single Crossbridge campus. Certainly the life of Crossbridge Pinecrest as we are praying and anticipating the opening of a brand new building. There's renovations happening at Crossbridge Brickell that, and a 10-year lease that's been uh, prayed for for eight years. Crossbridge Homestead is moving into year three, four of church planting. Miami Springs is growing and families are coming together and there's all types of new initiatives and Crossbridge Key Biscayne is reaching youth in a way it never has before. There's so many exciting things happening at every campus. And we believe that the time and the talent and the treasure that is pledged and given and sacrificially offered in the way that the Lord uses it in 2024 will set the course for the next 15 years. And so this morning is Pledge Sunday. This is where we encourage you, if, if Crossbridge Church is your home, to pledge your time and your talent to serve, to engage, to grow with the community, and your treasure to help us set our budget so we can be wise stewards for the coming year. And this morning, we're going to look at what does it look like to build a gospel movement. How do you build a movement of gospel legacy in a city and in a region? What are the pillars and what is required of all of us together as God's people? I want to bring us back to 15 years ago, the original vision statement of Crossbridge Church. In 2008, Crossbridge Church had this vision statement. It is to become a resource church that seeks the spiritual, social, cultural renewal of Miami and the world. This was the original vision statement. Now it is the renewal of cities through the power of the gospel. It's just simplified. But this has been our heart from the very beginning. It is to be a resource church and to bring renewal to all the different aspects of our city. And by God's grace and because of his mercy, we have seen so much of this happen. Since 2008, Crossbridge Church was one church, Crossbridge Pinecrest. 
50 to 100 individuals and is now a family of churches with about 1,500 people all across the city. From one church to five campuses and seven congregations in Miami alone and one in 2019, a Crossbridge church in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's amazing to see what God has done. And the way that he's grown this church, not just numerically, but in the ability to influence and to reach and to care for other churches. The bridge movement, as Sally mentioned, is now 16 churches. Those of us here in Miami, a church in Canada, and also a handful of churches in Brazil. And the bridge movement, as we celebrated about two months ago, was engaged in the first ever serve week where we served almost 10,000 people. And there were 1,500 or 1,700 volunteers that were serving in different countries all in the same week. Crossbridge Church birthed City to City Miami. You saw briefly in the video, Abe, who is a a board member of City to City Miami, goes to a different church here in Miami. And and we birthed City to City Miami and have been supporting it and been behind it. And so many of our leaders here at Crossbridge are a part of that organization, which trains up dozens of church planters of all different denominations every year and has been training church planters that are Baptist and Pentecostal and non-denominational and Presbyterian, all different denominations to reach the city because we've always said that we believe that it takes many churches to reach many different types of people in Miami. We want to be a part of a gospel movement and we've seen God by his grace do that. But we believe that the next 15 years is going to be even more exciting than the last 15, and God is going to write a new story, and he's going to do new and exciting things. And so I I want to position us this morning in Scripture because this vision to be a resource church, to bring renewal by the power of the gospel to cities, and to birth a bridge movement, and to launch campuses, and revitalize so many of our campuses, our revitalization works, and to support other pastors and other churches, this does not come from a boardroom meeting. This is not a pastoral vision alone. This is not just a pastoral team sat down and created a vision. This is birth from scripture. You see, in the Bible, we see a movement of gospel legacy that takes place in a city very similar to ours and sweeps not only a city, but a region. And we see the pillars of how to create a movement of the gospel. And this is the kind of church that we want to be. It's an Ephesus-style church. The churches of Ephesus were together a resource church for one another and for the entire region. Amazing to see what God did in Ephesus. Now, when you read the New Testament, you'll read letters that Paul wrote to different cities. He wrote letters to Philippi, and to Thessalonica, and to Corinthians, and to Ephesus. Now, when he writes these letters, he's writing these letters to the church, but he's not writing to one singular church. He's writing to the churches of these cities, and so it's important to realize that because that means that there was a miracle taking place in all of these churches. You know what that miracle was? Unity. Churches that were united, that were resourcing one another that we're all in together, that we're focused more on the gospel than anything else. And this unity among the churches, as we'll see in Ephesus, birthed a movement of the gospel when they built the right pillars that God had set for them, a city and a region 
was changed. Now, when we look at Ephesus, before we read in Acts 19, we're going to read about the movement of the gospel in Acts 19, even though we could read some of it in the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians as well. When we read it, I want you to know the context into which this is taking place. Ephesus was a vibrant city. It was a growing city. It was easily accessible. It was one of the most known cities in the entire Roman Empire, had great influence. In fact, people from all over the world would travel to Ephesus to do business, to to trade. It was growing and vibrant. But really what Ephesus was known for was tourism. Sound familiar? Vibrant, growing, easily accessible, a lot of business, a lot of trade, but known for tourism. And the reason it was known for tourism is because it had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That was the temple of Artemis. This temple people would come to from all over the world to see, to worship at, as pagan worship was taking place there, or just to be in the city with all of the entertainment and all of the offerings that were given around this temple. This temple was unlike anything you could imagine. This temple was four times the size of the Pantheon in Athens. It was the largest building in the Greco-Roman world, made almost entirely of pure marble. Amazing. People from all over the world would come to see this temple and to engage in the entertainment and offerings. Sounds like a lot of people that come to Miami. They go to South Beach, and those of us locals, we say, don't go to South Beach. (laughs) You can go for a season in time, but that's not Miami. But people come here because it's thriving, and it's vibrant, and there's business, and there's all types of things taking place, and there's tourism, and there's entertainment, and there's opportunities, and there's offerings. It was in this type of city, a city just like ours, that an unlikely movement of the gospel changed the course of the city, the spiritual landscape of the city, and it spread out from that city. So I want to read just a couple verses in Acts chapter 19 for you to see some of the building blocks of what took place. It says this in verse 8 of Acts 19. And he, this is the Apostle Paul, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul does what he often does when he comes into a city and he's church planting and he's building a gospel movement. He goes into the synagogue. This was an easy place to meet and he would reason and share the gospel with the Jews in the synagogue. And so as he's in there and he's sharing the gospel and he's reasoning with them from scripture about the reality of Jesus, that he's the Messiah prophesied, that he died and he rose, there's a lot of contention There's a lot of anger. It says that they are getting angry not only at Paul, but at the way. 
This was an early name that was given to the movement of the church, to Christians. These are people of the way, the way of Jesus. And so there's a lot of hostility. And so Paul hits the eject button and he leaves the synagogue. He's like, I can't build a gospel movement here. It's too contentious. They, there's all types of fights and issues happening. And so it says that he goes to the hall of Tyrannus. Now, in order for you to understand what this means, we have to understand the culture of Ephesus. There were all types of halls or lecture halls in major cities like Ephesus. And these lecture halls would be full of scholars and philosophers that would be teaching and reasoning. It would be offered to the people to come and learn and debate ideas and listen to different thoughts. This is like a YouTube of the day, you know. You'd go to the hall and you'd engage in these thoughts and you'd listen and you'd, you'd you know, kind of debate with people. But all of these would take place in the morning. And the reason that these sessions or lectures would take place in the morning is because in Ephesus, they had a siesta during lunch and early afternoon, meaning people stopped working, they took breaks, and they took naps. Can I get an amen for that type of culture? Amen. So everybody took a break and everybody took a nap in the middle of the day, a couple hours, and so all the lecturing would take place in the morning, which means as scholars have kind of discovered and unearthed some of the historical findings of the culture of Ephesus, that if Paul was going to rent the hall of Tyrannus, he was going to have to rent it in the middle of the day when no one else is using it, when everyone's taking a nap. And so he rents the hall of Tyrannus, and he starts a church here, and he believes something which is evident in all of his ministry, he believes in the power of the gospel, that people will forsake a nap and leave their break and go to church in the middle of the day. That something countercultural will happen if there's teaching and preaching and worship and praise and the people of God coming together, it will attract and people will be changed and transformed. He believes this. And so... He launches this church out of the hall of Tyrannus. And you saw what we read in verse 10. This continued for two years. Ready? And all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So from Ephesus, there's a church that is started in a very inopportune time. But there's a belief that the power of the gospel will save and transform and attract and compel people. And it doesn't say that Ephesus alone is changed. But that every person, all of the residents of Asia, the entire region of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Meaning, the gospel did something so powerful God used the people of God in this city, from this church, and the other churches that spurred out from it, to unite people historically divided, Jews and Greeks, and to preach the gospel to every single resident in, in, in a region that was known for pagan worship. Ephesus became an unlikely major center of Christianity. 
It became the place where pastors were trained. It became the place where people were called into ministry. It became the place where people looked to for evangelism. It was an evangelism powerhouse from the place that has the temple of Artemis. All the residents. Isn't that amazing? So here's the question I want to deal with. What were the pillars that God used to birth this unlikely gospel movement? Because here's the thing. What changed Ephesus and what changed Asia and what put the word of the Lord out to all the residents and birthed this unlikely unity among Jews and Greeks because the church was full of all different types of people from all different places? What birthed this, what started this was not a building. It was the people inside the building. It was the people that were there for a season and then moved to another city. And shared the gospel. It was the people that were there in the hall of Tyrannus that started another church in the other part of town. It was the people in that room that went to their workplace and shared with their friends. It was the people that committed together and grew together and were courageous about their faith that said, hey, I know you're going for a nap, but I'm going to church. It was the people. And there were pillars of this community that birthed this movement. So what are the pillars? There's four of them that I want to identify for us. And the first one is the most important, and is this, conviction of gospel power. They had a conviction of gospel power, that the gospel is power, not that it contains some power, or that if you really study the gospel, and if you go to church enough, that you'll... you'll over time, unearth some power in the gospel. Or if you get theologically astute enough, then you'll find the power of the gospel. They believe that the gospel itself, the word of the Lord proclaimed and preached, is power. That it would change a culture. That it would cause people to forsake their siesta and go to church. That people would be willing to be courageous in a city that was known for pagan worship, they would preach Jesus. They believed that the gospel is power. It started with Paul when he planted that church in the hall of Tyrannus in the middle of the day. But it didn't end with him. It was with all the people that believed that the gospel is power. I, I like to think of the gospel as a burning fire. It is a burning fire. Now, I myself am a little bit, probably a lot of bit, of a pyromaniac. Anybody else here love to build a good fire? I love the winter when we have some cold days. Sometimes we have five. It's wonderful. I, when we got a house a couple years ago, the, one of the first things I did was I bought a fire pit from Home Depot. They sell them like one month a year. I bought a fire pit, and it's on the side of my house right now, and it's ready. Okay? I actually right now have wood on the side of my house ready for whenever it gets to 65 degrees. 65 degrees and below, we're having a fire. Sometimes 68, depending on the vibe. You know, like depending on the mood, I'm, I'm doing a fire. I love a good fire. I love it. Something beautiful and attractive about a fire. Now, when I went to college, I went to Florida State in Tallahassee. And, sorry. And, you know, Tallahassee for Florida gets cold. I, have a, I see a null. Florida State, it gets cold, you know, for Florida. 
Some of you are from the Northeast. You're like, it's not cold. No, it is cold. You have to like heat up your car before you drive sometimes. You know, it's like, it's a whole thing. But in the winter, I would always gather with my friends and go build a bonfire. Bonfires are amazing. Especially after Christmas, when you use Christmas trees, you know, that's, that's wild. Be careful. Don't do that. But I love building a bonfire. So, I mean, a campfire is nice, but a bonfire is amazing. And, and there's something about a bonfire, like when you start to just kind of gather wood and throw wood on, that it, it attracts people. Have you ever noticed that? Like if you're in, in a park or you're somewhere where you're allowed to have a bonfire and you build a bonfire, people start coming. You know, it's like it's very attractional. Because people want to be around the bonfire. They want to gather around the bonfire, the warmth and the light and adding wood onto it and building it brighter. See, I tell you this because the gospel is a burning fire. And what I mean by that is we do not add any power to it. It is the fire. We don't add the warmth to it. Its message is the warmth to our soul. We don't add the light that cast out the darkness. It is the light. Jesus is the light. The gospel is a burning fire. But when you believe that the gospel is a burning fire and you have a conviction of its power, you begin to ask yourself, how can I throw wood on it to build a bonfire? Because when you throw wood on the fire, it gets brighter and bigger. The fire doesn't change but the size changes. See, Jesus has given us his church so that we can throw wood on the fire. That is his gospel. So it can burn brighter. It can burn bigger so that people can come to see and experience its power and its warmth and its light. The next three pillars I'm going to tell you are the wood to throw on the fire. If the gospel is power, it's a burning fire, and we are to throw wood on the gospel so that it can burn like a bonfire, attracting people to it as they see it burning. What are some things for us? Three very simple things. The second pillar is this, continual prayer. Continual prayer. The apostle Paul mentions prayer 41 times in the Bible. There's over 650 prayers in the Bible. If you just take your Bible and open to a chapter, you're going to find prayer pretty quickly. Prayer is everywhere. If you're new to church, if you've been in church for decades, you know that prayer is a central component of faith. We read our Bible and we pray. These are the basic building blocks of faith. We read God's words to us and we speak to God through prayer. Continual prayer is a pillar of our faith. Not occasional prayer, continual prayer. Ian Bounds, who is an author, he was an author, attorney, and pastor, quite a life, a lot of things going on there. But he said this, God shapes the world by prayer. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be. The mightier the forces against evil. God shapes the world by prayer. The more prayer there is in the world, the better the world will be. The mightier the forces against evil. If you want to pray, the, if you want to change the world, pray. Pray. See, revival delays because prayer decays. There, there's a lot of talk about revival. There's a, there's a there's a desire. I hope in your heart 
for revival of cities and communities. Revival delays because prayer decays. I believe that a stagnant church is a church that prays occasionally. It's full of people that pray before a meal, before dinner, in times of need, at night, occasional. These are all important times to pray because every time is an important time to pray. Occasional prayer creates stagnant people in their faith and therefore a stagnant church. If your faith is stagnant, and you're struggling in your faith, you're feeling distant from God, what is the remedy? Prayer. What does David do every time he's like, God, you've forsaken me. Where are you? He prays. Stagnant faith, stagnant churches pray occasionally. A movement of churches, a movement of the gospel, faith that is alive and active is continually praying. And my encouragement to you is to discover continual prayer. You don't have to go on Amazon and buy a book. You don't have to sit in a seminar. You have the privilege of talking to God like you talk to your best friend at any moment of any day. Would we be people of continual prayer? Would we stop with some podcasts? Would we stop with YouTube? Would we stop with our music? These things are all fine and great and leisure in our life. Will we stop sometimes? And be people of continual prayer. A pillar of a gospel movement is a praying people that pray continually. It's how the world is changed. Third, people that are committed to growing together. So you're you're convicted of gospel power. You're continual in prayer. And then you're committed to growing together. Church in Ephesus was not an option among a sea of competing options. It was not an event that you go to sometimes. Church was a way of life. It was countercultural. It was in the middle of the day when everyone else was sleeping. People were at church, worshiping, praying, taking the sacraments, learning together, debating one another, arguing through things and working out things, sharing doubts and building a friendship and a community of people. They were committed to each other every single day. Every single day. People from different walks of life. People from communities that were historically divided were there in church, and you have to imagine they were working out differences. They were working through things together. They were committed to one another. And I want to say this. Commitment to growing together. We, this can be said all the time in church. Can we commit together? Can we grow together? It doesn't just happen. It takes sacrifice. It really takes sacrifice. Commitment to grow together. And it is hard. I understand it's hard because we live in a city like Ephesus. We live in a city and exist in a sea of sirens competing for our attention. A sea of sirens telling us what we need to do with our life and what will matter for our life and what will be best for our kids, what will be best for our family, what will be best for our career. We're always hearing these things. 
You got to invest with these people. You got to network with these people. You got to put your money here. You got to put your time there. You need this kind of relaxation to get ready for Monday. You need to watch this show before it gets spoiled. You need, there's all types of things on all different levels that are competing for our attention, competing for our commitment, competing for our engagement all the time. And here's the thing. When church becomes mostly about sermon, it's not something that you really feel the need to commit to. Because if you miss it, you can get it online. And you can listen to other preachers that are fantastic too. When the church becomes about the sermon, it's very difficult to build a people that are committed to growing together. The sermon is important, what I've been called to do, <laughs> but it is not the center of the church. You are the people committed to growing together, to getting to know one another, to serving together, to sacrificing together, to growing together. It should not be an option. It is not an event. It is not a place to go to receive something that will be helpful for your week. Sometimes church can be treated like a vessel that will aid your personal worship and personal life. I go to church because I'm going to learn something. I'm going to receive something that will be good for my life and will help my personal worship. That, that's great. There's an element of that. There's a blessing in that. There's joy in that. God delivers and gives us words and he challenges us and he impacts and changes our life. When we're gathered together, it's true. But church is not a vessel for you. The church is a people that you're to commit to and grow with and worship with. That's church. And church was not the idea of the apostles. It was not the idea of some men and women in the beginning after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. They're like, what do we do now? I mean, I guess we start church. It was Jesus' idea. This is his church. And he's called us together. It's why the apostle Paul uses language like this. He says, we are many members of one body. And the church is also called the body of what? Christ. We are a part of his body. We have, we're many members, meaning we have different functions and different callings and different gifts and different time, different talent, different treasure. We have different things to give and to sacrifice and to pledge. We're all different, but we're part of the same body. The church is the people. It's you as a member. And you're called to discover your place in the body, your calling in the body, what you have to give, what you have to resource, what you have to offer. That is church. We're called to be committed to grow together. You know, one of the things that I, I hate more than anything is when a part of my body is hurting, right? You know? When there's like a, a, your back, right now I have a shoulder issue. It's so frustrating when a part of the body is hurting and is not working right. This is why it matters that you discover your place in the body and why you discover where you are to commit and what you are to give and how you are to serve and how you can engage and how you can be stretched, how you can be discipled and grown in your gifting. Because when a part of the body isn't functioning right, it hurts the whole body. You matter. 
Your calling, your gifts, your engagement, your commitment matters. Not just to the people that you're intimately connected with, but with every single person in the room and every single person that's a part of Crossbridge Pinecrest. And that's part of the movement of Crossbridge as a whole. You know, the Gallup poll has some stats that's come out. It's quite shocking. Uh, They've been tracking church engagement for eight decades. And they found some things that have happened over the past 20 years, and there's all different reasons, but mostly in the United States, church engagement was pretty steady up until about 2005. About 72% of Americans were engaged in church. Things start to change. It went from 72 down to 64, and then it dropped to 61% in 2010. 2015, here we go, it goes from 61 to 57, and then from 57, five years later in 2020, to 47. So in 15 years, church engagement goes from 72% to 47%. It has not recovered, and it is going farther down. In fact, some things are coming out, which is emphasizing this, that the reason, uh, one of the reasons why church engagement is going down is because 44% of people prefer to worship by themselves than with other people. So no wonder engagement's going down, because we're kind of existing in a culture and maybe even promoting a culture and accepting a culture in the church where church is really just about what I get for myself. It's personal worship. And most people prefer to worship by themselves and with other people, and yet Jesus has called us to be together. Many members of the same body, committed to one another. These things obviously make growing a church movement and committing together difficult because we don't see each other. (laughs) The, The new statistics in a city like Miami is that people go to church once every five to six weeks. Used to be weekly. 15 years ago, on average, once every one to two weeks. Now it's five to six. If we can't see each other, how can we grow together? We have to commit to one another. Now there is an encouraging finding. Do I have any millennials in the room? Hey, listen, we've, we've grown up, I'm a millennial, with a lot of shade thrown on our generation, okay? But millennials, their church engagement is up 21% since 2020. Every other generation is down. So we're millennials. We got it. We're doing it. But listen, this, this is the call, is for us to engage together, to commit together. And, and here's my, my encouragement. My, what I'm not asking you to do is say, every single church offering, I will say yes to every single one of them. I'm not asking that. I'm asking you to stretch yourself for this coming year. What time can you pledge? What talent can you pledge? What treasure can you pledge? In a way that is generous. Not just for yourself, but for other people. See, we want to be a resource church, which means we want to resource you, but we want you to resource other people. And the people that you may need to resource may be in this room. 
And you going to that side-by-side event, you joining that small group, you signing up to serve at that serve project, you going to the men's gathering, you committing to make church on Sunday not an option, but something you prioritize and do your best to be here to see your family and to grow together, that may be exactly what God is calling you to do because he wants you to interact with someone that you can resource, that you can encourage, that you can pray for, that you can connect with. We need to commit to growing together. We want to see a movement of the gospel. We've got to commit to growing together. The fourth pillar is a natural outflow of people that are convinced, convicted of gospel power, that are continual in prayer, and are committed to growing together. The fourth pillar is co-leadership. See, Paul starts this church in the hall of Tyrannus, but it is not all on Paul. He leads, and he teaches, and he preaches, but this church was full of all types of leaders. You got to remember, Paul didn't live there forever. He was only there for seasons of time. And, and he, the leaders in the church were not just all pastors. They were traders and cooks and lawyers and doctors and attorneys and teachers and construction workers. Men and women of all different professions and all different skills from all different places of life that were together to build the church. There was co-leadership. There were even prophetess that were coming out of the temple of Artemis that when they came to faith, they had to leave their job. They had no income and they were coming to the church and they were saying, how can we be used? How, how can we serve? This is co-leadership. You know, in Scripture, there's this statement that we are a priesthood of believers. We have this belief that there's the priesthood of all believers, which means this. If you, by grace through faith, believe in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, you are not only forgiven of your sin, you are not only loved by God, You are not only assured of your salvation, you are a priest. You have a holy calling from God. You're a priest. Have you ever introduced yourself to somebody as a priest? The Bible says you're a priest. And when you look at priests in the Old Testament, I I want to show you two things. One is, they had an incredible blessing, a great right, and that is, they could go into the most sacred, holy places of the temple and experience the hospitality and love and presence of God. How could there be anything better? The high priest got to go into the Holy of Holies, which was this one room in the temple where the presence of God was. It was covered by a veil. But the priest got to go into the sacred spaces of God's house And experience God's love and presence and hospitality. You know in the book of Matthew. It says that when Jesus died. When he died on the cross. Something happened in the temple. The veil. That covered the holy of holies. It tore in two. Exposing the most sacred place in the temple. To everyone. What is it saying? What is Matthew revealing to us? The same thing that Peter tells us, the same thing that Paul knew and preached, is that you are a priest, which means you have complete and full access to the presence of God by grace through faith. 
the, the sacred place of God, where God's hospitality and love and presence is shown, is not reserved for a special class of people. It is for all people of faith. You get to go to God's presence at any moment, and he's there. The veil's been torn. But the second aspect of priest is not only this great blessing that you get to experience the presence of God and the veil is torn, there's no restriction between you and God. The second thing is very obvious. Priest worked in God's house. So if you are a priest, there's two things. You get to experience the presence of God, the love of God, the blessing of God, the presence of God at all times with no restriction, and you're called to work in God's house. This is co-leadership. This is many members of one body. God has given you special gifts and callings. The Holy Spirit has gifted you. You have time and talent to offer, and you're called to use it. You are a leader in God's house. This church is not the church of the board. It is not the church of the pastors. It is not the church of those that have been here for all 15 years. If you are a person of faith, and this is your church home, this is your church for you to be a leader and to find your place. There's a reason when we set the pledge campaign every year, we, we don't just say, can you please pledge your treasure so that we can set our budget. We want you to pledge your time and your talent because we want to walk with you. Our calling as pastors is to walk with you and to help you discover where are you to lead in the church. And it may not be forward-facing. It may be behind the scenes. It may be in a way that you don't even imagine and we're not even thinking. But what is your place? We want to be a church of co-leadership, where we offer these spiritual sacrifices to God. See, here's what happens, friends. When, you, when these four p- pillars are founded, the same thing that happened in Ephesus happens in churches and in cities. What happened in Ephesus was revival. It swept the city, it swept the region. In fact, we read this in Acts chapter 19, that the people... There was this great move of people coming to faith in Jesus, and they were coming out of this pagan worship where there was like witchcraft and there was magical books. And they took all of those and they burned them. They were coming to faith in Jesus. They're like, we're going to surrender it all. We're going to throw away these things. We're going to take all of these books and we're going to burn them. You know, if we want to be a church that builds a movement of the gospel, we need to be convicted and convinced of, the, of gospel power. We need to be continual in prayer. We need to be committed to each other. We need to stand in for co-leadership, and we need to find our place. And lastly, we may need to start with burning the books. Burning the books. What are the things in your life and in my life, this is a self-evaluation, what are the idols that I don't want to surrender? What are the misguided beliefs and false promotions that I need to burn? What are the things that I need to give over? What do you need to bring to Jesus and burn? What false beliefs or misconceptions? What practices are distracting you from being a part of a gospel movement here in Miami? Burn the books. And it's not easy. And it feels costly. In fact, there's this detail in Acts 19. I love that it's placed here. It says this. When they gather all the books and they burn them, the value of the books was millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. Which means this. This felt costly. And it was costly. 
and when, when Jesus is calling you to surrender something or to sacrifice something or to burn an idol or to throw something down or to pledge something, it's costly. It feels costly. And I want to say this. If there's something in your mind that you're like, I, I, I feel like this is the thing that God's calling me to surrender. He's calling me to sacrifice. He's calling me to give. He's calling me to pledge. He's calling me to burn. But I don't want to. That is exactly what needs to be burned. The thing that you are resistant to give, the thing that holds that place of value in your life is the thing that's holding you back. We have to burn the books. And we have to return to our first love. I want to close with this. Um, you know that Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus. In the book of Revelation, John, the apostle, recounts the words given to him in a vision that Jesus says to the church of Ephesus. That's not what you think. Here's what it says. Verse 2 through 5 in Revelation 2. Jesus' words to the church of Ephesus. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Like look, they have been working and toiling. They have been patient in endurance. They've been doing all these things. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Wow, look what they're doing. And you have not grown weary. They are still charging forward. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you first, you did at first. I want to caution us. All of these pillars are important. Convinced of gospel power, continual in prayer, committed to growing together, co-leadership. And there are things that we're called to sacrifice and pledge and we have to burn the books. But would we never be a church that forgets our first love? We are not a church of works. We are a church that works out of grace. My prayer is that we would pledge not only our time and our talent and our treasure, but we would pledge to return to the love of Jesus. That would be what motivates us, what guides us, what directs us. It's his grace and his mercy, it's his loving kindness and faithfulness. We can do all types of great things in Jesus' name, but if we don't love Jesus, we have forgotten our first love. And we've loved what we're building instead of the one who's called us to build. So a movement in the city of Miami is a gospel movement. It is a movement of people coming to love and see Jesus. And my prayer is that you'd pledge that. And that you believe in that. And that you commit to that. We're going to close with this song. And there's a, a part in this song where it says, come awaken your people. I want to ask you to sing it, but to make it your prayer. To make it your prayer. To sing it as a prayer. And to believe that God can bring revival when we return to our first love and we claim Jesus as, as supreme and then we work out of that love to build a gospel movement. Amen? Will you pray with me?
God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for your love. We pray that as we close together as your people in prayer, that we would know two things. One, that you are with us in this space. You have promised that when we are gathered, you're uniquely present. And Lord, would you receive this prayer, this song as a prayer to you? Would you return us to your love, Jesus? And would you light a fire in our soul to be about building a gospel movement together? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand and close in worship, church.